November 10th, 2019, a note of farewell. This is a blog I hoped to not write so soon. However, reality has proven otherwise. As most of you know by now, the reality of my circumstance has caught up, and I have passed away. As I write this, I'm living my last month, week, and day. I lived the last year and a half with a disease that one day was eventually going to take my life. Each day my body was paralyzed more and more, and breathing without the assistance of tools was more difficult. Quality of life for me has always had a set marker. As it got closer and closer to what the poor quality of life looked like for me, my decision to use yet another tool in my toolbox became more clear. MADE, Medical Assistance in Dying, provides the opportunity to take back a little of the control that ALS took from me. For me, utilizing MADE provides me with the chance to determine what my end of life looks like and to not have it dictated to me in a form that I did not want. I am getting to do this my way. Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. What you just heard is the beginning of a blog post that Jessie Ravensborg wrote shortly before she died in November 2019. Jessie was diagnosed with sporadic ALS when she was just 35 years old. She died shortly before her 37th birthday. Today you'll meet Jessie through her mom, Heather. This is a conversation about choosing joy about wringing out all the good from life that you can for as long as you can, and when the joy can no longer compete with the darkness of a most insidious disease, choosing to say goodbye. This is about facing your mortality, about knowing what matters to you in life, and about the bravery of understanding what it means when those things move beyond your reach. This is our second episode in a short series sharing stories about medical assistance in dying. Two weeks ago, we met Laurel, who utilized MADE after COPD had tipped the quality of life scales too far in the negative direction. Laurel was 70 years old when she died, and certainly she should have had many more years. But Laurel lived a full life. Jessie didn't get that chance. ALS meant she didn't get a say in that. What she did have, like she wrote in that blog post, was a say in when and how her brief, brilliant life came to an end. This is Jessie's story. A quick reminder that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me. From finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. If you value this podcast and want to support it, please go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. So, um, I think I first actually learned of your daughter from an Instagram post by probably Michelle McGrath. <laughs> yes, As yes, we have a common friend. Yeah, didn't Brian and Michelle spend a good amount of time with Jesse? Um, after she was diagnosed? Yes, she, um, well, as a, as a mom, we want to do whatever we can um, to, to support our kids. Mm -hmm. And one, one of her, um, oh, she she loved the flames, but she really admired work that Brian McGratton was doing off the ice. Yeah. And 
I happened to know of someone who knew him. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if he could just come and say hello to her, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they made that happen. But what ended up was just a wonderful friendship with mm -hmm. Brian and Michelle and their son, Gabe, yeah. and the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just absolutely loved their dogs. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was a really, a really nice friendship. Um, that still to this day, I stay in touch actually with uh, Michelle's mom. The other day I was just oh, texting with her. Nice. So nice. Yeah. I would see pictures of you guys all on a walk with the dogs and <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Gabe and toe and everybody. So yeah, I know that when we actually went public with Chris's diagnosis in December of 2019. And so that was right around the time that Jesse died. Correct. She died in November. Right. Right. And I know that when, that when Chris told Brian, it, it hit him pretty hard because he had already been sort of watching Jesse go through her progression of her disease. And then to have another friend, another friend diagnosed and, and Brian was an early, uh, an early shoe tire for Chris <laughs> in the yes. office because Chris couldn't, can't tie shoes, still can't, just doesn't wear slip-ons, which I say in every episode, maybe he'll listen at some point and say, I think Kelsey wants you to get slip-ons. You know, you might be um, beating your head against the wall with that yeah. one because I tried to so. get Velcro shoes with Jess and absolutely no way. Oh, it had man. to be, yeah, tie. Yeah. yeah. And today I was leaving the house with the kids and then I was going to go pick up breakfast for some friends and deliver it to them in the hospital. And, and Chris didn't realize I needed to leave when I needed to leave. And so I tied his shoes for him. And then I turned off the lights and he said, leave the lights on. Cause I have to make coffee. And my son was like, dad is going to walk around the house with his shoes on. <laughs> and I said, I guess, I don't know. He's like, you mom, you just cleaned the floor two days ago. I'm like, I can't go and I can't do anything about this. <laughs> No, the, the shoes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're, you're bringing back some memories there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the shoes are there. Well, you know, it's so hard in a disease where so much about your physical self is, is, is changing. You don't get a say in any of it. And so I understand despite my, you know, complaints about tying the shoes, I understand very much the want to remain as much the same as you possibly can. And if that means tie shoes, then okay. I will be grudging yeah. tie your shoes yeah. how many ever times a day. <laughs> well, some, some sense of normalcy exactly. and to allow, allow the, when so much is being stripped away yeah. to give some normalcy. So if it meant, you know, tying those shoes and mm -hmm. also leggings, just wanted to wear leggings. And there's certainly other clothing items that would be a lot easier. <laughs> but she loved those leggings. And um, if, if that's what I have to do, then that's yeah. what I would have to do. I'd yeah. go along with it. <laughs> no matter how, no matter how difficult the putting on of the leggings is, which is sometimes difficult even for me myself to put on my own leggings. <laughs> At least it wasn't like skinny jeans that she wanted to wear all the time, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, you know, we're already kind of doing this, but I was thinking about how the universal thing about all parents is that we love to talk about our kids. <laughs> 
And I think that the universal thing in grief is that we want to talk about the people that we've lost and remember them. Mm -hmm. And so I know that we're here to sort of talk about, about Jesse's disease and about, um, and about her death. Um, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about all of the wonderful things that Jesse was outside of her disease. And so I wondered if you could tell me what kind of little girl was Jesse. Yeah. Storytelling is great. Um, Jess was um, kind of an old soul and um, very, very happy, loved to be with family and friends, loved having experiences. At the same time, she loved to read, too. She was a reader and had no problem. She was uh, only child, and I was a single mom for um, first part of, of um her childhood and um, yeah, just uh, very happy go lucky, um, positive, mm-hmm. sensitive to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As she grew up, and I know you mentioned that you were a single mom for you know the younger portion of her childhood, but as she grew up, what was what was your what was the evolution of your relationship with her like? Did she go through that sort of typical teenage angsty years or were you guys always sort of on a different sort of closeness level? We were always pretty, pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Teenage. I mean, there, it wasn't always <laughs> idealistic. I don't want to paint her as <laughs> certainly the perfect child, mm-hmm. but you know, she really didn't cause a lot of grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. for us at all in in the teenage years in fact she was um she was the one who introduced me to my late husband oh. and uh, she performed with you singers of calgary for oh like grade five to grade 12 mm-hmm. and they were going on a a trip um they were going to be performing in disney world and then a show choir festival and she wanted me to go with her and I was a little anxious about doing that. I thought, why are, why are we doing this as I'm driving up the Deerfoot to the airport? And anyways, we get there and I'm saying to a friend of mine as she's saying goodbye to her son, you know, I, I don't know if this was the right thing for me to be doing this. It's cost a lot of money to do this and blah, blah. <laughs> and she goes, oh, just go. You might meet a man. I said, Going with a hundred teenagers, I really <laughs> doubt I'm going to meet a man. And no more got those words out of my mouth. And Jesse um, says, "Mom, I want you to meet Mr. Lucier." Mm. And so that began. Mm. So she always said, "I don't know what I was thinking that day." <laughs> she, <laughs> she would tease, and um, which was the nature of their relationship. They did. Uh-huh tease each other a fair amount <laughs> she was 14 then 14 and yeah. um and we we got married a couple of years later mm-hmm. and um and he was really her um yeah her father figure mm-hmm. and um we she she ended up moving out to Kelowna we lived in Calgary and she moved out to Kelowna to university and I think she really gained a lot of her independence out there I think it was really good for her to to move out there and um got her degree and then she stayed working out there mm-hmm. and she worked at after- university right yeah, she did. Yeah. And uh, she ended up working in their development and alumni office. So worked a lot around um, 
She said, I've got the best job. I get to thank people for um, donations to the university. And oh, that's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She loved her job. Oh. But after, after Wally passed, um, I think with her maturity and um, we were able to really uh, start to move towards more of a, a friendship versus the mom daughter doing some road trips that uh, reminded me more of road trips with girlfriends than yeah. road trips with your family kind mm-hmm. of thing. We'd, we'd have some really good, good conversations, some real honest discussion. which I think really set us up for the challenges ahead that Mm -hmm. we could have really good dialogue, open and honest. Do you remember the first time that she mentioned to you she was having some trouble physically? Yeah, we were were out in Victoria. She was convocating um, with a master's and... I had just seen her a month before we had um, she'd done a a five kilometer charity walk. We'd walked the stairs of the saddle dome, Um, but I noticed she was limping and um, she told me, mom, I'm looking after a hip flexor issue that I'm having. And if it's, I'm getting massages and if I'm not feeling better in a couple of weeks, then I'll go and have physio. It's being looked after. This is a happy weekend and we're not going to talk anymore about it. Right. Okay. She shut you right down. <laughs> she sure did. I could not go into mother mode at all. Oh man. That's hard. Those questions ticking through your brain all weekend long. You want to ask her? <laughs> no kidding. And I have my, my career was in healthcare and, um, started out as an x-ray tech. So, you know, I'm thinking about body mechanics and, and such. I have all these questions, but um, I had my orders. So, <laughs> um, so that was uh, about the middle of November of okay. 2017. Yeah. She, so Jesse actually kept a blog um, about her sort of journey after her diagnosis. And yeah, she wrote that her first symptom was hip pain in the fall of 2017. And then by January, she ended up doing physio. Um, that stairs were becoming harder and then her legs just kind of started to feel weak. And I wonder what the sort of progression of your conversations with her about how she was doing physically, what that looked like, because you were here in Calgary, right? And she was in Kelowna. So I just wonder, you know, once you felt like you could ask your questions, (laughs) uh, you know, (laughs) what did those conversations look like for you? You know, how concerned were you at that point? I mean, nobody's head goes to this place when you have a, I mean, she was what, 34, 35, 35 at that time. Yeah. She was turning 35 the Christmas. She came out of Christmas of 2017. Mm -hmm. She was struggling to get out of a sitting on a, on a couch. She'd have to roll onto the arm and use her, uh, uh, the arm of the couch and use her arms to push herself up. And, um, I was very concerned and a friend of ours, who's a nurse said, you know, that this is something neurological. Hmm. So she, she knew right away. So I'm thinking, okay, she's maybe herniated a disc or Hmm. something happening there. Cause she's still complaining about her 
hips and, and leg. And I thought, yeah, I bet you, I bet you she's got a disc issue. I said, you're, you need to see a new physiotherapist. This is not, mm-hmm. not working. So when she went back, she got in to see just a sound like a wonderful fellow in Kelowna who really set off alarms, phoned her physician and said, she needs imaging done. I want her to see a neurologist. And um, up until then, her family doc, I think really just dismissed her as being someone who wasn't active enough uh, with exercise and overweight. And uh, she did listen to the physiotherapist, did did the imaging, and it did alarm Jess. She phoned me um, after the visit with this physiotherapist, and I could tell she was she was a little shaky. And I said, "What what is your your worry here, Jess?" Mm-hmm. And she said, "I'm concerned it's MS." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Have you have you looked at MS? Researched it? No, I haven't." I said, do me a favor and do some reading at legit sites. And we talked about, you know, good sources to go to. And I said, let's chat in the morning. Mm -hmm. And she called. She said, no, this doesn't line up for me. It's not MS. And so then I I think she just relaxed like, okay, yeah, I bet you. That was the worst case scenario. Yeah. In her mind, that was the worst case. And she was planning for a trip to Africa, a vacation and volunteering trip. And the doctor and the physiotherapist said, yep, go ahead. Cause the imaging came back, of course, um, looking quite normal. Mm -hmm. And so off she went to Africa for, um, for a month. Mm -hmm. And while, and, and while she was preparing to go, you mentioned to me that you saw her suitcase and what you saw there was pretty alarming to you. Well, yeah, she showed when she flew into Calgary for a couple of days before heading to Africa, she said, oh, I just thought I'd get a cane to help me with a little bit of balance. And I thought, oh, okay. And then she said, and, and I've, I've packed this. And it was a toilet seat riser mm-hmm. that took up, you know, a third to half of her suitcase. And I thought, this, this is not like, this is not good. And mm-hmm. I, I honestly did not want her to go. Yeah. Thank God she did go. Mm-hmm. um to Africa but um and and I knew that I mean the wheels were in motion for her she was going come hell or high water obviously <laughs> but I mean for for a young woman to to use up that amount of her suitcase yeah for this obviously like there's majorly something wrong but uh anyway she I, I knew she wasn't, she wasn't taking a lot of pictures. I knew she'd be sending me a lot of, you know, she's so social that she'd mm-hmm. be sending me a lot of pictures and there weren't a lot. And then all of a sudden her and her friend were moving to another place and this place didn't have stairs. I learned later she had fallen down the stairs oh. while she was there. 
But um, of course, mom doesn't get all the information mm-hmm. from mom Sierra will Leone. Fly to Sierra Leone and bring <laughs> you back to Calgary. <laughs> so then, near the end of her trip, she had finished. Uh, she was teaching a management course to some young Sierra Leonean teachers, and uh, once that was done, um, then she phoned and said there's something not right with my hand Mm -hmm. and um, talked with our nurse friend as Jesse called her, her um, fairy godmother Mm. and said, you have to come home right away. Mm. And within 48 hours, she landed in Calgary airport. I drove her straight to Foothills hospital in emerge and uh, bless them. The, because I, I was I was ready to I was in mama mode mama right. bear mode and I was just waiting for them to once again dismiss her symptoms right and um, that's not what happened at all and the physician said we're going to admit you and you won't leave here until we know what's going on mm. did you notice when you picked her up at the airport was there a noticeable change in how she was doing from when you brought her to the airport three weeks before? Definitely. She was, um, and she was very good at trying to hide it that, you know, she was managing just fine, mm-hmm. but she was very um, dependent on the luggage cart mm-hmm. and, um, and then getting into the car. She was very dependent on the cane Um, I thought, I don't, I don't know if I can even get her out of the car. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I was quite, quite concerned, Mm -hmm. Um, quite a difference in one month. Mm -hmm. ALS is a disease that is hard to diagnose because it is, there's no test. So it's a process of elimination diagnosis. And I've talked about this before on the podcast and in general, uh, it takes up to, you know, I think on average, it takes a a year to be diagnosed with this disease. Um, If you want to go back to the very beginning of when Jesse started to have symptoms, she lines up with that a little bit more just because, you know, like you said, the physio wasn't thinking in that term and, you know, to be fair, most people wouldn't be thinking in that, in those terms of, of a motor neuron disease. Um, but once she got into foothills, um, she started to have a lot of tests. And I wonder if you can take me through sort of those, those three weeks that you guys were in hospital and, and, you know, what tests she went through and and what things were being thrown around as to what this might be. Mm-hmm. Um, we were really quite fortunate. Um, as we know, backlog happens. And so she was in uh, Emerge for two days before they could get a bed for her up on the neuro unit. But nonetheless, that didn't slow down any of the testing. And um, a neurologist uh, had ordered uh, MRI. Um, they thought they would wait and do uh, EMG testing as an outpatient down the road was the thought then. And they did some blood work. She was quite dehydrated because she was nervous of going to the bathroom. She also on the plane, right? Mm-hmm. Very nervous about um, eating. So she was very weak when she came as well, when she arrived in Calgary. 
So they were just pumping fluids into her and trying to get her to rest because she hadn't slept and such. So um, on the second day in Emerge, the neurologist felt that he had a diagnosis. He said, there, there's a disconnect between your brain and the muscle. And he says, the good news is we can do um, neuro rehab and get get those brain waves connected to those muscles again. Um, so this is good news. And he left Jess with some um, research sites so she could learn about this. And I came back the next day. I said, did, did you read up on this? And she said, no, no. And she would have nothing to do with the diagnosis and in fact was a bit defensive she even said to him so you think this is in my head and he said no this is something very real thing yeah 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 but she was she was rejecting it um she was being transferred up to the unit I went for a cup of tea with a friend at Foothills and um I was being called to go to the EMG lab Mm -hmm. and I thought, well, that's weird because we were going to be doing that after. I ran into her nurse practitioner uh, and I said, you're, you're doing the EMG. And yep, uh, she said, when, when a patient totally rejects a diagnosis, she said, I know I need to go back to square one. And so I did submit a requisition for an EMG. Mm-hmm. And there's a stack of EMGs requisitions, and the neurologist goes through and prioritizes. Right. And I'm so grateful that day he he chose Jess's to do that afternoon. So I went to the EMG lab and sat there and um, well, as you know, as a mom to watch. Mm-hmm watch your child go through such a painful. Yeah. I've test. and I've You've, talked before about what on the, on the podcast about an EMG, Chris had three within like two months. Um, and it's a horrible test where they stick needles in your muscles to gauge how your nerves are interacting with your muscles basically. And if you aren't relaxed, which is insane because you cannot relax when someone is putting needles in your muscles to determine if you have uh, an untreatable <laughs> terminal illness. Um, they, If you can't relax, it sounds like incredibly loud radio static is what the machine sounds like. And so the doctor spends the whole time saying, relax. I know it's hard, but try to relax. And I'm just like, stop saying that. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. Just, just said to him, how... You know, it's an oxymoron. You're telling me to relax while you're you're poking needles into me. And she was very, very compliant um, and laid laid very still. But I mean, the tears were just trickling mm-hmm. down. It was it was hard. And then also having worked in in the medical field with professionals, I could tell there was this um, yeah. nervous excitement by. Um, the neurologist and um, a resident that was with him. And I didn't understand the language, but I certainly mm-hmm. picked up on, on the, the tone and the body language. Mm-hmm. 
and such. And um, so this is day two of just being back in Canada. And that was the first time then he said, we need to investigate. But basically, um, the most common thing might be that it's a, an autoimmune disease, like a chronic form of Guillain-Barre. Mm-hmm. The second thing would be a rare neurological cancer. And the third would be motor neuron disease. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't use ALS. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite Connect it. clue in at that time. Mm-hmm. And we went back. Uh, so this is very late on Friday. That's another thing. I mean, we were, it was late Friday afternoon and staff was staying to, to do this. So I knew, I knew something was up. And then the first neurologist um, wanted to come and meet with us. And it's a Friday evening. He's a young guy who's now off service. I'm thinking on a Friday night, he's coming back to speak to us. Not good. And he came and apologized and said, I've misdiagnosed you. And he was so upset. Mm. I said, like, just be black and white with us. Lay the facts out. We deal best with that. And and that's when ALS was mentioned. Mm -hmm. And there was something in my gut. Um, I just, I I knew then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though... Then the next week was all the tests, like you say, eliminating things. So doing the lumbar punctures, doing um, more MRIs, doing CTs to eliminate Mm -hmm. um, cancers, Uh, blood work, a lot of blood work. Mm -hmm. Did you guys talk about that after that when you said I, you knew sort of um, when they said this is what this might be. Um, did Jesse feel that way as well? Did you guys talk about that that weekend? Um, not a whole lot. I got my marching orders once again from her. Um, <laughs> Zip it. <laughs> yeah. She said, I'm not researching any of this. I'm not looking at it. Um, I'm not wasting my energy on, on that. I will wait till there's a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is something I think we did learn uh, from my parents in the nineties, both of them were, were ill with chronic illnesses and acute illnesses. And, and we would get so, uh, oh yeah, you know, dad's having a test. I think it's going to be really positive this time. And then it would be negative mm-hmm. or the reverse would happen. And I, I remember, um, Jess and I talking and I said, you know, it's a, a, a real waste of energy to be anticipating, Mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be this. It's going to be that. Let's mm-hmm. just wait for the facts. So I think she she learned from that maybe more than I did too. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she was also pretty still pretty weak from travels, mm-hmm. and I think she was starting to um, relax. Right, she knew she was now in safe hands versus mm-hmm. you know yeah. being in Africa and thinking how am I going to get home. Mm-hmm. I know on one one airplane ride, I think it was from Sierra Leone to um, Amsterdam, they actually had to get her in a chair and the guys had to lift her up mm-hmm. the stairs. She couldn't take the stairs up to the airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that even when you know that 
the diagnosis could be something like ALS. When you have had something wrong for so long and haven't gotten any answers, there is a weird amount of relief associated with just knowing what it is, even if it's the worst thing, just right. Mm -hmm. Just what is this? What is happening to me? Yeah. Yeah. Have some answers by a team of people. Uh, And I know I'm a little bit, um, Bus. I, I'm a graduate from Foothills Hospital. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my career working out of Foothills mm-hmm. Hospital, but they also, they cared for my husband mm-hmm. uh, at the end of his disease so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And um, just knowing that we were in those safe hands. Yeah. Yeah. You can rest a little bit. Yeah. Didn't like have that added stress. Mm-hmm you know, of not getting attention. Yeah. And so you went through that weekend and then the next week of more tests and what was, um, at what point did they finally confirm the diagnosis? So it would have been a week later. She had to have another EMG. Um, and so we knew that this would be, we, we had a good feeling, but we weren't really, I don't think we were really speaking it, but when the lumbar puncture came back, that there was no autoimmune, yeah. nothing's showing up in her blood work. Uh, they're not seeing anything mm-hmm. on MRI and CT. We're, mm-hmm. we're starting to face the reality of it. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. he, he did the second EMG and then left the room and came back with the nurse practitioner who we'd known many years too. So I thought, okay, um, we're about to hear. And he said, I'm sorry, Jesse, you have ALS. And I I think even though we maybe anticipated this, um, there was a level of shock to actually hear those words. I, I went into like a panic mode, but there's, in my mind, I was Mm -hmm. sitting there still, but I'm in my mind is just a a panic and there's Jess and she's got some tears in her eyes, but number one, she said, is this genetic? Mm -hmm. And number two, what's my prognosis? Mm -hmm. You know, so she, she was ready with her, her two important questions. Mm -hmm. And I wheeled her back to her room and, uh, And we just hugged each other Mm -hmm. and a couple of friends just happened to be coming by. So um, once again, nice to have community, but it was four hours after hearing the confirmation that she had ALS. And she said to me, mom, quality of life for me is meaningful engagement with people. Mm -hmm. So I will not go on a ventilator. I won't have, a trach and I will likely utilize medical assistance in dying when I deem it's appropriate. Four hours. This is four hours later. Hmm. What do you remember about what was happening in your mind? Because I'm certain as a mom, what you were showing her outwardly and what was happening internally were two different things. So when she said that to you four hours after you'd just been told that she had this disease, you know, what, what was happening for you? It's probably 
the most significant heartbreak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then most um, sort of a bewildering pride. Mm. Yeah. That she would first off know what quality of life meant to her at probably the most critical point in her life. Mm -hmm. And that she would be very firm about how this was going to play out. And basically she's telling me, you know, you jump on this train or you, or you don't. I don't know how much is just her personality, my personality, our relationship. But even if I had had my own personal views that, that were against utilizing made, I would not have even broached the subject of no. Um, she was very adamant about how this was going, going to be. Yeah. I wonder how the loss of her stepdad, of your husband, um, how, how do you think that watching him go through his illness and watching him grapple with his own mortality and his own, um, and his own disease impacted how she faced her, her own diagnosis? Well, Wally was someone who saw things very black and white. And um, just a few months before he passed, he sat us down and we went through uh, goals of care, um, personal directive, the will, like he just spelled everything out. And so she saw that example. He, he led us with that. And then he was also very clear when he was, he was sick um, or rather in hospital for 11 days. And um, he was very clear about if he went on a ventilator, that it was not going to be for long. So he, he was very clear too, for someone who didn't have medical background either, he, he was still able to see things black and white mm-hmm. and how things were to be. And he communicated it very black and white. So I think that that showed um, as an example to Jess, uh, when he was in ICU, she flew in from Kelowna and uh, he wasn't intubated yet. So um, when she came in the room, he just had such a big smile and it was, it was beautiful. Um, <clears throat> it was only about a couple hours later that he was intubated. So they did have some time together. And then she was with me that whole week. Um she had also worked a year at Rocky View as a, before she went to university, she worked as a, as a, a unit aide at Rocky View's ICU. So she had some of that experience too, some clinical mm-hmm. um, experience, but take that with Wally's um, end of life and how he prepared for it. I think that influenced her mm-hmm. a great deal. Yeah. I think it's, you know, to be able to 
have sort of traversed that path of suffering and grief and acceptance of those things, you know, I think that it just changes the way that you look at life. And, you know, I think it also goes back to you saying that she was an old soul to have that sort of understanding so immediately, mm-hmm. like, this is what I want and and really not wavering from it. Like you said, like once she said that there was not, mm-hmm. there was not a change. No. I was thinking about, um, when Chris was diagnosed and one of the things that he asked the neurologist, because ALS is such a, I mean, we knew what we were dealing with, right? I think a lot of people when they're diagnosed with ALS, they have a ton of questions because they don't understand, they don't know a lot about the disease, but because Chris's dad had died not even a year before he was diagnosed, like we knew what was coming for us. Right. And um, we were very fortunate to have this like hopeful conversation, which is not at all what we expected because our neurologist immediately told us about this clinical trial that, you know, that Chris is in and remains in. But one of the last, you know, things, part of that exchange was, you know, the neurologist asking, asking Chris if he had any questions, any, do you have any more questions for me? And Chris said, well, what do I do now? And the neurologist said, do what brings you joy. And, you know, I think about that all the time. And then I know you mentioned to me that, um, that that was Jesse's mantra today. I choose today. I choose joy. And I, I wanted to read what she wrote, um, on her blog kind of about this. Um, and she wrote, it was during the weekend. I came to the conclusion that the weekend, like immediately the two days after she was diagnosed, it was during the weekend I came to the conclusion that this disease would not change who I am fundamentally as a person. By choosing to not live in the anger and sadness, I would instead live with optimism and love. Remaining in a space of anger and bitterness was something I viewed as a waste of energy, and energy is something which is rather finite in a day for me. I wondered what it was like for you to watch her live those words in the months to come. Well... Like I say, it's, you, I could jump on the train yeah. or not. Right. And and I think um, because she was so busy, she wanted to, to live. She truly wanted to live the time that she was going to be here on earth. Mm-hmm. And so we were very, very busy. I didn't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to process and with ALS, it's a constant, it's like mini funerals. Oh, yeah. I call them microcosms of grief. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because there's loss. There's constant loss, mm-hmm. you know. Um, one day there, she's able to stand, the next she can't and never does again. Able to um, use an iPad, then not. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, there's just these constant losses. So I was busy organizing things, putting things in place. Also knew I needed to to take care of myself. Yeah. But there's not a lot of time when someone needs 24 by 7 care, even though we had public and private home care. There wasn't a lot of time to... Um, spend on myself and processing. And I, I often thought I, I'll do that after what I've realized now, as I reflect back and, and in the ALS grief group, we talk about 
PTSD, even though I have troubles with this being a disorder. It's not. I prefer the term um, post-traumatic growth because what am I going to do with this, right? Mm -hmm. This information. But there is so much living in trauma Mm -hmm. and it's a real um, paradox, right? We're living in trauma and having extreme joy because we we truly are busy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's having daily infusions, two weeks on, two weeks off, but that became part of her social life too. Yeah. Um, we're going to plays, we're going to concerts. We saw Obama, we mm-hmm. saw Oprah, and of course, hockey games have to do hockey All games. All the things that matter, Oprah, Obama, <laughs> and hockey. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, But then there's the logistics of, you know, we had to get an accessible van. There were so many times I think, oh, Wally, if you were here, you you could help us with these these things, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So there there was a a lot of trying to do some self-care because I did hurt my back through this. I sprained my ankle, my hands went um I'm sure it's just like an inflammation um my hands were so sore in the beginning I think that's where my stress went Hmm. so I knew I had to look after myself but at the same time Jess is depending on me and so I need to be strong yeah because I want I want a journey with her on this too yeah yeah absolutely I think about a lot the notion that Chris is clinical trial medicine that he's on has, you know, without a doubt, slowed his progression. We went through a period of time where we thought maybe it would stop. It had stopped his progression because we really didn't see any um, progression for the first nine months after he started on the treatment. The thing about ALS is it's so relentless. And the reason you're talking about post-traumatic stress and and maybe not even being able to address that until after Jesse had died was because every single day, something else was lost. There was, like you said, all these different things you had to grieve and there's no coming up for air in this disease because it is so relentless. And I think a lot about how Chris's clinical trial drug has given us that break to grieve. And it is not a small thing. You know, he had a couple of things late in the year last year. He hasn't been able to really swallow much, um, for now, I guess about, I mean, he's had a feeding tube since a year ago, November. Um, so most of his, his diet is liquid, which you would think because it goes through his feeding tube. And you would think that that would mean that your stomach contents empties faster because it's just liquid and your stomach doesn't have to work hard to break down. But actually what that creates is like a lazy stomach because there's nothing in your stomach to make your stomach contract, to break down the food it actually causes something called delayed gastric emptying because your stomach is like, well, we don't need to work here, (laughs) nothing here to do. (laughs) And so he was actually, he was in the hospital a couple of times with reflux while he was sleeping that he ended up choking on that led to aspiration pneumonia before we figured out this was happening, the delayed gastric emptying. Um, And it was just very stressful and hard. And then I had a, a moment like two weeks ago, we probably figured it all out around 
January, I think in the, in the very beginning of January, we got on this new medication and an antacid and his life, his quality of life is much better now, which is also a miracle because that doesn't happen in ALS where you find an answer to us, to a problem. But, um, I had a day where I was just a disaster and I realized, oh, now I'm feeling all of that because I hadn't been able to stop that whole time. Like, oh, Chris went on a road trip and Chris is all of a sudden in the hospital in Toronto. And now I got to find someone to take care of the kids. And I had dropped the kids off and I got to fly to Toronto and I got to be with Chris and I got to get these, I got to figure out what's going on and make sure he gets these antibiotics and crush them and put them in his feeding tube and just on and on and on and on. Um, and then there was another hospital visit that happened. <laughs> I was supposed to leave with my son at like five in the morning for a hockey tournament in medicine hat. And Chris had another issue with reflux at like 1 AM. And I had to wake up my son at three in the morning and tell him, I got to take dad to the hospital. Can you stay here with Willa? Or do you want me to wake her up? Cause my daughter's only seven. Cohen's only 10, you know, here's your computer. So you can call me. I'm just going to take dad to foothills emerge and I'm going to come right home. And then I had to stay up that whole time and take him to hockey <laughs> to a hockey tournament. And so I just crashed, right? And that's what you're talking about. And that was only like two months of that to crash from before I had the chance to address it, right? And you're talking about year, you know, months and months and months, years of you having those things and not being able to really process them, right? And that is an unbelievable amount of trauma to have to sift through for you. That was a very long story. Sorry. <laughs> no, it just, it's, I think it's important for, for people. We don't know what we don't know. So I do give grace to people not understanding the ALS journey, but it is so layered. It's so complex. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So no, I think the more stories yeah. we tell, the, mm-hmm. the better. And I, I do believe there's there's healing in in our storytelling. Yeah, for sure. And I just, you know, I think it was all for me to say. Like, I'm so grateful to this drug for so many reasons. And it's strange to think like I'm grateful that I can grieve within his illness because I don't think you had the chance to do that, right? Like you were just getting pulled along, both by her Jesse's like passion for filling her days and getting pulled along by the disease, right? There was no, there was no time to come up for air. No, no, there isn't. There isn't, yeah. you know, that being said, it's the nature of a mom. Cause in the back of my mind right now, I'm thinking, oh yeah, Heather. But when you took Jess for infusions, I would go over to Starbucks and sit and, and have a tea. And maybe a friend might join me yeah. or I could do some grocery shopping. Like it wasn't that hard on you, right? <laughs> Don't we do that though? We say, oh, but at least I had that. I had a coffee. It probably wasn't that bad. I'm probably making it worse in my head than it really was. You're not. <laughs> but the whole time too, like now, as I look back, yeah, I'm also thinking about, you know, gee, it's snowing out. I got to go down the deer foot. I, I hope, I hope it's safe. Um, yeah. You know, hope we don't have anything go wrong with with the van. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to be there on time because home care is coming. Mm-hmm. And and then I got to go get these this medication. And 
and, 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 right? And then respiratory is going to be coming because she needs a new machine because ALS can affect the diaphragm of which it sure did with Mm Jesse. And she needed two different breathing machines and, 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 right? So even though you're sitting there with your tea, you weren't like sitting there in peaceful meditation. (laughs) No. No, you were spinning. You were silently spinning while you drank your tea. (laughs) (laughs) Making sure everybody saw I looked very calm. Right. Yeah. The duck, right? Calm. Very composed. Underneath just spinning. Yeah, totally. Which Um, is an energy drainer in itself. Oh yeah. It's hard to never get to take that stop and you turn your brain off. Right. And when you're constantly worried about somebody that doesn't, it doesn't ever end. Well, and then my mind also goes to to you, you have two young ones Mm -hmm. to, to have some normalcy for them. Mm -hmm. Yet from what I've, I've read and, and seen, you're also very realistic with your children. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about it pretty honestly. And again, I would go back to the, and this is the way that I, um, that I, at least myself, I think you said you read some Kate Bowler and she talks about people at leasting her, like saying, well, at least this, at least that. And the way that I, at least myself a lot is by talking to myself about the medicine that Chris is on to say, well, at least his progression is so much slower. And at least we have it. We have had this opportunity because so many other people would want this opportunity. And it can get in my own head about how legitimate my our my grief is and what we've, what Chris has lost is. And, you know, somebody, one of my best friends once told me like, there's no grief Olympics, <laughs> you know, like there's no medal for who had it the shittiest. <laughs> no. no, we no. can just all try to, you know, pull each other along because yeah, what's the option. But you, you mentioned a couple of times, the, the infusions. And I wanted to talk about that because um, Jesse chose to take a drug called a Daravone. I'm pronouncing that right. A Daravone. Yes. Yes. There's only a couple of approved ALS drugs. So the drug that Chris is on is not approved. It's still in clinical trial. Um, mm-hmm. and a Daravone is exhausting, <laughs> right? It's, it's, uh, daily infusions for two weeks and then yes. two weeks off, yeah. and then repeat. So daily infusions every single day, 14 days in a row, and then 14 days off. Um, and about taking this drug, Jesse wrote in her blog, Something that struck me when I first talked with my specialist about this drug is that he said that you take this drug based on faith, faith that the drug is doing what it is supposed to be doing because I won't see it making a difference. She went on, why do I do this? Because even if it gives me an extra week or month, then it is worth it. And I just thought that speaks to what ALS patients in general are fighting for just extra time. Mm-hmm. What were the conversations like for you guys surrounding deciding to, to use a Daravone? Um, and then, you know, kind of what was the, you mentioned that it became sort of a social thing for her. Yeah. In the, um, in the beginning, it was, it was a bit complicated because, um, it was not a drug approved in, in Canada mm-hmm. yet, uh, our neurologist, uh, who ran the, AHS clinic here in Calgary um, recommended it and and the hospital would definitely do the infusions 
You just had to get um, the medicine. But had to get the medicine. And so they they gave us the protocol of how, how to do it. And we had to order it from Japan. And was it so covered there was then by AHS or how does that, if it no, wasn't approved, no, paid no. out of pocket. We had obviously. to pay out of pocket yeah. for it. Yeah. Which um, when we were ordering it from Japan, I think don't hold me to these, these numbers, but it was about 13,000 a year to order from Japan in the States last year. I think it was that same drug was is $185,000. And now that it's approved in Canada, I know they were wanting 130,000. And I don't know exactly where we're at as far as covering the costs Mm. of that drug. Mm. Anyways, they'll get me started on big pharma. No, I know. No, Uh, I know. I hear you. Mm -hmm. But um, we definitely, we, we ordered from Japan and um, even looking at, do we do like a home infusion, but because it's a drug outside of, you know, not approved by Canada, who, who could do home infusions, you know, it was, there was a lot to figure out, but we were so blessed. Um, the South Health Campus Hospital does the infusions. And so that's about four hours out of our day, two of them being spent in uh, day medicine. And uh, she eventually ended up, I think they waited about three months before she could, they want to see if she tolerated the the drug first. And then she ended up with a, a port. Yeah so that she wasn't getting poked all the time. Um, and that had its challenges. Like, like it's, it's not super smooth, like, oh, great. She had a port and all was well. No. And um, just like it was a, first off, a change of scenery, mm-hmm. something new. She liked hospital settings. She ended up becoming friends with a couple of the nurses there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, it became a real social event. I realized in trying to think about self-care, I didn't, just couldn't be left on her own because if she started to choke, she needed to get um, supplies to her. So, and her hands weren't working. Um, she just always had to have someone with her. Yeah. So we called them infusion buddies. And I put a call out to a group of friends and um, they would come meet us at our home. We'd go to the hospital. I would leave them at the front door of the hospital and our infusion buddy would accompany uh, Jess up to day medicine. Mm -hmm. It changed up conversation in the van Mm-hmm. so that we weren't getting bored with our own conversation. <laughs> um, you know, we'd hear some new news and such. So that became a bit of a social. But the the nurses and, uh, and the clerks at Day Medicine were unbelievable. And when Jess decided um, enough was enough, and then she was thinking about maid, she decided to stop infusion. So... Mm-hmm. The nurses knew that that meant that Jess was was thinking about her end of life care. And so her last day, they celebrated Jess and 
there were purple was her favorite color. There were purple hearts down the hallway from the elevator to day medicine. And then she noticed everyone was dressed in purple Mm -hmm. and they had purple balloons. They had purple cupcakes, um, some gifts, um, and they celebrated her. That's probably one of the most beautiful things I've seen in healthcare, (laughs) you know, to see our clinicians celebrating our kid. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. So you already mentioned, you know, that as Jesse was getting sicker, she couldn't be left alone and she needed more help. Um, you know, and I think we talk about the physical toll of ALS and just how much attention the disease needs. Right. And then there's the element of, well, who is going to give that disease, that attention, like who's going to be there to help because you are one person is not physically possible for you to always be the one helping Jesse for whatever reason, maybe because it's a two person job, maybe because, you know, you need a break, you have to sleep, (laughs) things like that. Um, And I know you've mentioned, you know, just now the great experience you had with the day medicine and how you have a really warm place in your heart for foothills. And I also know that you guys had your struggles with, you know, accessing the amount of care she needed um, through, you know, the provincial healthcare system. And I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, we had um, we had a pretty challenging time that I, I would rate it as um, next to diagnosis. This was probably the, the most um, crushing and devastating um, out of the blue. We weren't prepared for this at all. Home care said they couldn't sustain Jess's model of home care. And at that point, she was using the maximum, which was 42 hours a week. We were hiring uh, privately as well. And that was about 21 hours a week of, of an LPN to come in. Home care said they couldn't sustain and that um, Jess would need to move to a hospice. So at that point, Jess is still saying she would go on a ventilator, like if she ended up with pneumonia and needed to go on a ventilator, if they thought they could get her off of a ventilator, right. she would go on it. So she she still was very, very active out uh, leading a horse through uh, a corral. She wanted to be around a horse, um, going to like I say, plays and concerts, very, very social friends coming out from Kelowna to visit very, very social. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said they had two hospices that she could choose from and she could be there within a week. They're thinking they're pleased because they have a solution in their mind. Mm-hmm. This came so out of the blue. We, we were shocked and they said, but you'll, you'll have to stop your infusions. Mm-hmm. And the infusions were working for her. They really, um, she was on such a decline with her diaphragm. She really didn't think she would have been there that spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so she definitely was not ready to give up infusions. And the other med, Rylazol, she wasn't ready to do that. She wasn't ready to give a DNR. She was devastated. Um, we had to advocate for, it was about a month 
where we had to apply for extraordinary funding. And we had some incredible support from AHS themselves. But it was it was like a court case where we had to present that Jess was still living life and not not ready for that. Now, another option would be to give up public home care and totally look after that financial burden, which we would have done if we were cornered. We would have done that, but it, that's not the right thing. That is not the right thing in our healthcare system. What the, that's exactly what our healthcare system is meant yeah. to avoid, bankrupting yeah. people because of an illness. Yeah. And I mean, I had no problem sharing costs. Absolutely. So, but we did, we had, we had some incredible support. So it wasn't just us against HS. I don't want to paint that picture. Um, we had some really good support. I think there was some, not, I think, I know there was some really good learning. Jess was remarkable in how she presented ethically why this was not the right thing to do. And so since then, I've had conversations with HS leadership, and I do, I do commend the conversations that we've had. There's an advisory, a home care advisory group being established, a bit hijacked because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there is a focus on this. And unfortunately, our young adults are not big consumers of home care and therefore not a big consideration, I think. And those are, those are my words. I think we need to advocate more for programs for young adults, certainly for any degenerative neurological diseases as well. So I will be sitting on that, or I am sitting on that advisory uh, team yeah. and will continue. The night before Jesse passed, she said, mom, please promise me that you will um, continue our advocacy work. Mm. And so I got to keep that promise. Yeah. Right. That's another thing she told you to do. Don't ask questions. <laughs> keep advocating. <laughs> she also told me, she also told me back then that I needed to, to do a protest to get out of, <laughs> to get out of, uh, my, my norm. And I mean, this is before, you know, the pandemic this before protests before were the- happening every day. <laughs> That's right. I know for sure she wouldn't want me out there protesting now, but, but I do. I, I get a little chuckle of, That's of that. Did you do a protest? Have you protested yet? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Someday. Someday. My pro- my protesting would be wearing a mask in a place where people yeah, aren't pro- um, maybe adopting masking. Yeah. Well, now you're <laughs> protesting everywhere you go then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. So when you, when you went before that board and you got that extraordinary funding, um, that was just to be clear, that was just to get back what you already had. That's right. That's right. That wasn't anything extra more than what we already had. Exactly. Yeah. What was the reasoning? This is just curiosity. What was the reasoning if you were already operating within the confines that they said they couldn't sustain that? I, I, I have my assumptions. And um, I think sometimes, you know, it's very easy to be in an office looking at the books and saying, wow, like we have this group of patients are really costly. How can we, how can we get those costs down? Mm -hmm. 
And, and that was something that I said to the two young gals who they were, that came to deliver this message. They were new in their careers. And I said, are you telling me that hospice care is cheaper than home care? And they nodded and said, yes, which I know from my career in healthcare, that's not, not the case. But if they're looking at, at their line items, their, their budget within home care, mm-hmm. um, Jesse would have been one of the costly ones. So what are the alternatives? And that's fine. We need to have those conversations. What are some of the alternatives? Absolutely. But have the conversations with the families. Yeah. Not, not in a, a boardroom or an office and then come and tell a family, mm-hmm. as Jess said, you're telling me how I'm going to die. Right. And so I do want to emphasize that home care has been very open to having discussions mm-hmm. and with me and to try and understand how, how that went too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for continuing to do that work. You know, I know that it's just going to benefit a lot of people down the line to have to have families and and advocates in those discussions that have gone through it right that's what we need more of well and i'm i actually just got asked to speak at rocky view hospital about caregiving i've been doing a lot of speaking about caregiving family caregiving mm-hmm. and and that is one thing that hs is doing right is bringing in patient and family advisors. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. They're moving in a really good direction that way. Good. One of the blog posts that Jesse wrote was about trying to figure out how to grieve for herself, which is a very, you know, strange concept when you're a young woman and you should have your whole future stretched out ahead of you. And now you have to sort of face this mortality and while she was trying to grapple with that, she was all often all, also trying to protect you. And she wrote about how you would tell her, hold me as able. And I wonder if you could tell me about that phrase. Well, I'm, I'm of the philosophy that we're all on our own journey. Mm-hmm. And I can't fix anybody and nobody can fix me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And actually, if I try to fix somebody, I might be pushing them off the course that they're supposed to be on. I can walk beside them. Absolutely. I can be compassionate, um, collaborate with them. But that is something growing up, too, that Jess and I talked a lot about is um, holding each other as able. And and we talked a lot about it when, when Wally was in hospital too, of, you know, let me figure this out for myself. Mm-hmm. And that I, I did that with Jess right when she was diagnosed with ALS. She, she wanted to go back to Kelowna. She wanted to get back to work. She just wanted, she wanted life to go back to normal, yeah. right? As much normalcy as possible. I was doubtful that that was going to happen, but I was not going to be the one that was going to tell her that too. Mm-hmm. I had to hold her as able. And she, she was an intelligent girl, critical thinking, um, a researcher. I knew she would make the right decision, but I had to let her reach that decision herself. Mm -hmm. And, 
And I'm glad I did because I think it was easier for her to accept than that she wasn't going to be going back back to work. Mm -hmm. And then it was part of our open dialogue that we agreed early on that would be we'd be honest with one another of the emotions we were going through. Like she said, don't don't hide things just because I'm the patient here. Yeah. Yeah. What were those? What were some of those conversations like for you guys? Those really honest ones where you weren't hiding things from each other? Oh, often pretty tearful. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to be clear about, and I, 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 I think in, in buckets, and I said, Jess, there's the ALS bucket and there's the Jesse bucket. And I said to her, you know, I want ALS to go away. I don't want you to go away. Because yeah. I never wanted any words to get misconstrued either. Yeah. So I've, I've even used that in my grief of the buckets. There's the grief bucket and then there's the suffering bucket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I know that I'm trying to control something that's not controllable, I'm in that suffering bucket. Mm-hmm. Get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. I can... I'll feel sad the rest of my life. Of course. And I will have grief all my life. It's how I integrate it in. Mm-hmm. So being really clear about some of that with Jesse around, you know, when I'm frustrated, mm-hmm. it's, it's I'm putting it in that damn ALS bucket. Yeah. It's not you. So really separating out the disease and the person, which sounds cliche, yeah. but I think it's very, very important. Yeah. And probably for Jess, you know, she's thinking, oh, you know, here's my mother's being a mother again, or here's the care, you know, she's my caregiver too, yeah. right? And then she has her frustration, of course, with ALS. So it's really being clear about the, the emotions yeah, and where they're targeted. Yeah. Yeah. They're the last podcast episodes I did were with a husband and a wife and the husband was in a boogie boarding accident, paralyzed from the chest down and, and has minimal use of his hands. He was a surgeon um, before. And, and she talked about the same thing you're saying. She said, I look at it as there's me and there's Richie and there's his injury. They're different things, mm-hmm. right? And it's so interesting to me how we can have these vastly different experiences. We can all come back around to the same sort of ideas and, and notions that help us manage them, right? Manage yeah. our sadness. Yeah. And it's so, it's so interesting to me that she said basically the same thing you just did. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it's a coping mechanism too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you have to, because for sure there, there are times when you're frustrated with a disease and, and it's such a healthy thing to say, like, this is not you, this is, I'm mad at the disease, you know, and the kids and I say all the time, we hate ALS, ALS sucks. We hate it. Yeah. We just want dad yeah. here. We hate yeah. the disease, but we just want daddy here, whatever that looks like kind of a thing. Cause we'll be having, you know, cheeseburgers and French fries and Cohen will say, I'm glad dad's not home if he's at work because dad would want to eat this and dad can't mm. eat this, you know, and we hate it. And so we can have that moment where yeah. it sucks and then leave it in that spot. And so it doesn't yeah. have to go from that bucket 
to other buckets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Form, right. Yeah. Some spillover. Yeah, exactly. So in September of 2019, Jesse wrote a blog post saying that she was going to stop her infusions. Um, and that it was a hard choice for her because part of it felt like she was giving up. And then she had to remind herself that this wasn't giving up because she was making a choice. Um, and she ended, uh, she ended the post with this. Now I am shifting my focus to doing things I enjoy and spending time with family and friends. Basically, I am filling my cup with love. And she died two months later. And I wondered, right, September, she died in November? Yeah, November 2nd. Yeah. I wondered, you know, what did those last couple of months look like for Jesse? How did she and you fill, fill her cup with love? Well, it was the end of September. Jess knew that November 2nd was going to be her date for medical assistance in dying. It just came to her that November 2nd was going to be her date. And I said to her, how do you know November 2nd? And she said, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like a, a voice told me, but it wasn't a voice. And, mm. um, and we had a lot of discussions about that. And it's, it's a mystery to both of us. Mm. Um, I felt that it would be a very heavy time for five weeks. Like I thought, Oh, five weeks. But during that time, she was planning her service, which gave her delightful was her one of her words, but it gave her such delight Hmm. to be doing that. Um, She also worked on uh, her legacy. So she created a memorial award at um, University British Columbia Okanagan campus. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, doing doing her service, setting setting that up, choosing her music. She was very thoughtful about the music, um, poetry. Um, that there had to be the tall like tables in the reception area because she wanted people to be mixing and talking and not just sitting at a table and and not meeting other people she wanted people socializing she wanted um purple gin served (laughs) she wanted a dill pickle bar set up or dill pickle chips bar rather and um you know so her humor was coming through um the musicians that she chose Uh, came and performed the songs, the three songs that they did Mm -hmm. um, for her the week before. Um, Dave Kelly invited us to his um, Dave Kelly live show. Mm -hmm. And I said to Jess, oh, I'll, I'll let him know that we won't be going. And she said, well, why not? I said, this is on Wednesday and you'll be passing away on Saturday. And she said, well, what are we going to do? Sit and stare at each other, mom? We're, of course we're going to go. Mm-hmm. And um, she had a nice little friendship with Dave. And we, so we went. She uh, actually had the hairdresser come over and straighten her hair. She wore makeup and was fussy about what blouse she was going to wear. Mm-hmm. And she enjoyed the show so much. She laughed. 
um, it was just a, a wonderful evening. And, um, and then she was, I was surprised because she was not letting many people know her, her date or mm-hmm. that she was passing really. It's a, it's a heavy piece of information for people. Um, but after the show, she, she wanted to say goodbye to Dave. And so they did have, uh, have a moment to say goodbye. And, and she did that with a few, a few of her friends, um, you know, Brian and Michelle and Gabe came over. And, um, I think she gave, she gave us a gift. Those of us who, who had that very precious time with her. Um, she gave us a gift in um, perhaps getting further insight into our own yeah. beliefs around death and dying, mm-hmm. um, figuring out priorities of our own lives. So she was very thoughtful that last last five weeks. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell me about the day Jesse died. Mm-hmm. If I had to choose two words, because I think people have misconceptions around medical assistance in dying, and the two words would be calm and fast. Mm. Actually, even the night before, very calm. She wanted to have tacos, which was a routine for her birthdays. We always had tacos. That was her choice. She loved them. Mm -hmm. Um, Two friends that would be with us. Uh, the next day through maid uh, were with us that evening and uh, we had tacos together chatted I asked her I said do you have words of wisdom for us Jess I was really looking you know like what what's her last thought here for us and meaning of life like (laughs) tell us and um, she thought for a moment and she said nope got nothing and and I was a bit shocked, um, disappointed. It was quiet. And then we all burst into laughter. <laughs> and I thought, how great. Like, she's she's emptied everything out. Yeah. She's said everything she needs to say. Yeah. Um, and then we all had tears. Yeah. And, um, and then she wanted to watch the third period of the hockey game. <laughs> I hope they won. <laughs> You know, I think they did. Good. <laughs> I th- I think they did. I can't. I can't remember. Um, my mind was elsewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she wanted to watch the third period, and then we had, um, you know, got ready for for bed. She was very thoughtful about which home care aides were going to be there um, and such. She had it all very organized. A lot of taking control of things. Yeah. And uh, for the first time that I can remember, she said, Mom, will you stay with me till I fall asleep? And so I sat and held her hand. We talked a bit. um, And that's where she asked me to to carry on advocating. And and she had some questions about the afterlife. And we had a, a lovely discussion. And the next morning, very, very calm. You know, her mantra was, today I choose joy. Mm-hmm. And joy, as I say, joy came knocking on the door that morning. The nurse from the maid team, her name was Joy. Mm-hmm. And so joy came and helped set things up. 
I stayed in the room with Jess. They were, she was setting all the supplies right here where I'm sitting right now. The supplies were laid out here. So I didn't see anything clinical, neither did Jess. And um, she set up an IV in each hand. And Jess was quiet, but um, very, very relaxed. It was a very, very calm. Jess said, Mom, will you set up a playlist of some songs with no weird music, she said. So I never did ask her what she meant by weird music, because I think I have pretty good taste. <laughs> Anyways, there there was, uh, I had music playing, and um, the doctor came, and Jess had met this doctor because she was the second assessor. And... Um, she came in and, and the doctor just really matched the mood of the room. She was wearing a purple top for Jess. Um, and she, like, I think within five minutes, everything happened. It was, it's very, very quick. And she had um, medication in her hand and she said to Jess, you know, Jess, if you if you want to tell me to take a hike, that's okay. And I love the way she said that. So she's looking for the consent to proceed. And so it wasn't medical. It wasn't prescriptive. It wasn't cold. It just really matched Jess's personality. And Jess said, no, let's, let's do this. And just within seconds, a couple of minutes, her tired diaphragm stopped and so I was so glad and and I would recommend anyone who's um, involved with MAID make sure that conversation is had long before the team comes to the house it's not like you'll have have time to to converse Mm -hmm. you know she said her final words to me and then she just peacefully went to sleep yeah and I just I finally saw her face relax. No more pain. Yeah. Yeah. Very peaceful. Yeah. And I felt, I felt relief and I knew, and I'm, I'm so thankful I had these conversations beforehand, but there was a sense of relief. And I told myself I was never going to feel guilty about that. Yeah. Cause she'd been, she'd been through too much been 20 months she deserved peace Mm -hmm. and as a parent you go through all those things with your kids like you feel all of it I remember and this is such a trivial example but I remember my mom telling me how much harder it was for her to watch me play sports (laughs) competitive sports than it was for me to play them and now that my son plays hockey I'm like oh no she's right it's so much harder to watch your kids go through challenges or even triumphs yeah. Without being able to reach in and say, oh, I can help you. I can nudge you this way, or I can help you. I can take that yeah. in a way. And so you experienced that like viscerally with her that whole time. So of course yeah. you felt relief that she wasn't suffering and relief that you guys had made that journey together. Yeah. 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 I know you have to go teach soon. Um, so I'm just going to ask you one more question. What did Jesse teach you? Keep my eyes and my heart open. 
She just had compassion and a wisdom that I'm so I'm so proud of because she 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 built that herself. Yes, I gave her foundation, but she's the one who built it. Yeah, that is to keep keep my eyes and my heart open. Yeah. Especially now, right? Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> to keep searching as I figure out my identity. Yeah. Yeah. You are no stranger to loss. Um, you know, you lost your husband, you lost your daughter. Um, now I'm breaking my rule because I'm asking you one more question. Um, <laughs> but I wonder, you know, how you have continued to move forward in your grief. There has to be some blessings out of this. I mean, Wally was young when he passed. Just definitely. It's it's to honor them. Yeah. It's to honor what they went through. So I can't, I can't ignore that. There are things that they would have wanted to be doing. And, and I, I'm here now. So I need to be doing what's going to serve. Yes, serve me and serve and serve others. But I take, I think about the qualities I really loved about both of them Mm -hmm. and try to build on that myself. Yeah. You have spent a lot of time taking care of the people you love. And I hope that now you're really taking care of you. Yeah. Thank you so much for telling me about Jesse and sharing so openly. I really, really appreciate it. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. And you and your family are so in my heart. Thanks. We are in this shitty club together, Heather. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. I hope you have a great afternoon teaching. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good day. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I think so often about the words of author Viktor Frankl. And after these last two episodes, these particular words in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, seem especially resonant. There are situations, Frankel wrote, in which one is cut off from the opportunity to do one's work or to enjoy one's life. But what never can be ruled out is the unavoidability of suffering. In accepting this challenge to suffer bravely, life has a meaning up to the last moment, and it retains this meaning literally to the end. Jesse absolutely suffered bravely to the end. We are better for knowing her story, and I'll end today by sharing a bit more of it in her own words by reading the conclusion of that final blog post she wrote that I started at the beginning of the episode. Jessie wrote, A few lessons from this journey that I would like to share. One, if you know someone going through a difficult time and you don't know what to say, tell them you don't know what to say and that you are sorry this is happening to them. Saying you don't know what to say is better than saying nothing at all. By saying you don't know what to say, you're letting that person know you acknowledge what they're going through and that you're there for them. Two, If you see someone in a wheelchair, don't say to them, your legs are sore and you wish you were in one of those today, because chances are that person in the wheelchair wishes they had sore legs and could be up walking. We all need to pause for a moment and think sometimes before we speak. Three, as a society, we struggle with death. Death is not spoken about or embraced as part of life as it should be. I hope one day that changes. Four, lastly, experience your life. Don't just go through the motions. 
take an opportunity to create a new memory with your family and friends. Those experiences are what you will remember the most. Speaking of family and friends, I have so much gratitude to my people who have supported me on this journey. Most significantly, the gratitude I have for my mom is so immense. Many people have said how strong I am, which I appreciate, but the real warrior in our family is my mom. Her strength, grace, devotion, love, and unwavering support throughout this journey mean more than I could ever put into words. She has been by my side since day one, and the experiences and memories we have created over the last year and a half have been full of joy, laughter, fun, and appreciation. Thank you, Mom. Every day, I made the purposeful choice to live with joy. I said in the very beginning of this journey that I wasn't going to allow ALS to change who I am, and I'm proud to say it didn't. Goodbye. Much love. Jesse. The past is never past. Just rain.